0: Hey left fielders, you know our partner, Tribevest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, Tribevest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. Tribevest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the Open Tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse access to take advantage of deal webinars and Open Tribes. Self-storage has been one of the fastest growing real estate sectors for four decades straight. With inflation on the rise, it may be the hedge you're looking for. Spartan Investment Group identifies low-risk, value-add investment opportunities in commercial real estate. Their private debt and equity opportunities offer stable monthly payments and predictable returns. And since they put every investment through a 700-plus point due diligence checklist, you can invest with confidence. To learn more, visit spartan-investors.com.
1: You know, if you go to late 2020, certainly through uh, late 2022, there was an imbalance of supply and demand in almost every sector with a lot more demand than supply. Why? Because we shut down supply, and demand was came back faster. It's just that simple. And when demand grows faster than supply, you get prices up. That, it's that simple.
0: Hello, Left Fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go.
1: This is Ryan Gibson from Spartan Investment Group, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast.
0: This is the second part of a two-part podcast interview with Peter Linneman. If you didn't catch part one last week, please be sure to listen to that first so you don't miss any of the great content from Peter. On to part two. Well, okay, but why why is the Fed so hell-bent on... um, you know, causing a bunch of unemployment. That seems like, like counterintuitive. I understand they, they want to, you know, cool things down, but that, that seems like it's overreacting, as,
1: as you said. Okay, so two points. One is the economy is not overheated. If the economy was overheated, real GDP would be like 5% above pre-pandemic trend, not 2.5% below to a, a pre-pandemic trend. So let's take that. And what the Fed has adopted is, well, let's don't raise the bridge. Let's lower the water as a policy, right? And you go, well, that's kind of crazy. Rather than raising the bridge to let a a little boat through, we're going to lower the river. We're going to do all the engineering to lower. That's what they're doing. Now, why? There was an imbalance between supply and demand across the economy. I don't think you would just, you know, if you go to late 2020, certainly through um, uh, uh, late 2022, there was an imbalance of supply and demand in almost every sector with a lot more demand than supply. Why? Because we shut down supply and demand was came back faster. It's just that simple. And when demand grows faster than supply, you get... Prices up. That It's that simple. But what do high prices do, Jim? High prices create profits. And remember the record profits you heard about in late 21 and 2022? Guess what they did? They brought about more supply. And as more supply came online, guess what happens to prices? So remember I don't know what a year and a half ago, year and a quarter ago, all those ships out of the harbor containers were like $4,000 to get a container ship, a container for a ship. And I think it's down to something like $800 now. Why? It brought about a lot of supply. So the Fed has decided rather than letting demand run its course and let inflation occur and bring on more supply to adjust. We're gonna try to kill demand, even though it's below trend, makes no sense. And if it sounds to the listener like it makes no sense, there's a reason it makes no sense. You don't have to be in a PhD to understand that if the economy is doing way less than potential. And demand exceeds supply. The solution is how do we pump up supply, not how do we reduce demand? Right. You know, that that, that makes a lot of sense. And when we're talking
0: about inflation, I've heard you talk about year over year inflation and how the Uh pandemic kind of... Uh, kind of skew the numbers, I guess, is is an easy way to say it. Can, can you talk about that? Because when I when I go to the grocery sure. store, I certainly see some
1: things are more expensive, but it's all perspective, correct? It's all perspective. A couple things happened, right? Um, we shut down the economy; everything collapsed. What was the price of a baseball ticket in the summer of 2020? I don't know. I couldn't go. <laughs> right. It was indeterminate, right? What about an airplane ride to Germany? I don't know. I couldn't go. I mean, there was a whole bunch of irrelevancies, right? And there were a whole bunch of odd distortions. Uh, We're still sorting out those distortions. Um, I can tell you, though, we know unambiguously supply has come back all across the economy, some places more. remember, Remember about, what, nine months ago, Everybody was talking about the computer chip shortage. What's the discussion today? We got a surplus. That's supply at work when there's a shortage to start with. Prices go up, brings about supply, and chip prices have fallen. You know, oil prices have fallen, et cetera. So now, what about the year over year, month over month? Most of the time, year over year and month over month, minute over minute, week over week, no difference. But when you have such a bizarre period, it matters. So what happens is they come out with the numbers and they say, ah, prices are 5% higher than a year ago. Yes, but I want to know what they are rising by right now, this minute, this week, this month. Now, the data is only available monthly. If you take the monthly Inflation. That is how much higher is this month than last month? If you take that for the last four months, you'll see I'm rounding. It was one tenth of a percent in a month. Then it was four tenths of a percent in a month. Then it was one tenth of a percent in a month. Then it was four percent, four, four tenths of a percent in a month. Now let's just do that. So we add one tenth of a percent to four tenths. That's five tenths of a percent total. One tenth makes it six tenths. And then Four tenths. Or, so we had in three months, we had one percentage point of inflation, with volatility from one tenth to four tenth. So one thing is volatile, and the second is it's it's one tenth of a percent. Annualize that. How many months in the year? Twelve. So if I know it's one percent in four months, that makes it about three percent in all right in in the year, right. and and that's way below a 5% number. Why? Because they're collapsing in price. You add to that, so inflation, by the way, in two of the last four months, inflation was running like 1.3% a year, in two of the last four months. Now, you could say, all right, in the other two months, it was running like 4.8%. So I'm just trying to give a picture. You add to that one other anomaly that's been well-known, which is because of the way they collect the data, housing is very oddly calculated. Are you a homeowner, Jim? Yes. How much did your home, what What happened to you last month? What was the inflation for you as a homeowner last month? Nothing. How much did your rent go up last month? None. I don't rent. I locked in my rent when I bought it. Okay, sure. Replacing your gutter spout, if you had to replace it, was a little more expensive. And you could figure out that, right? But basically, the two-thirds of the households who are owners had no home price, had no home cost inflation. And to the extent they're an owner and home prices went up, they're happy. Right. So two-thirds of the, of the population had no home price, had no housing increase. Then you go to the one-third who are renters. What they basically do is take the rent increase from six months ago. That occurred six months ago. Why? They say you have a year lease. Most of the people aren't right renewing their lease every month. But if I want to know about inflation that's happening, I want to know – How are rents increasing now? Well, you're in the business. How much are rents going up for apartments in the last couple of months? Not much. Right. Been pretty flat. You can find somewhere it's up, somewhere it's down. Depending on what index you use, housing is 18 to 42% of the index. 18 to And it has been the main driver of measured inflation. But you and I know in the last couple of months, there's been no increase. If you put in no increase or no notable increase, that 3% 3 annual number I said, you're down to like 1.5%. So I'm not saying there isn't any. I'm just saying I'm not panicked by that kind of numbers. And I'm certainly not trying to get people unemployed with those kind of numbers. So how does that affect everything else? Like we
0: still have, you know, we might not have inflation as high as people think it is it's really a lot about perception because the Fed is still raising rates, or they were, maybe they will, maybe they won't. So can you talk about how that impacts the Fed and what you think the Fed is gonna do? I know it sounds like the Fed is, you know, just doing whatever they
1: wanna do regardless of what the situation is, but how does that all work? Look, okay, just so people understand, I don't think it's a political conspiracy because there are two political conspiracy theories floating around about the Fed. One is Republicans saying that when I say Republicans, I should say conspiracy prone Republicans are saying what the Fed is trying to do is create all this pain now so that by like November or October this year, they can cut everything and it'll be wonderful. And the run up to the election, the economy will be brilliant. I don't think they control the economy that much. Right. But there's, that's the, that's the uh, Republican conspiracy. And the Democrat, again, the conspiracy prone Democrat, um, says, no, no, no. They're trying to destroy the economy now so that Biden and the Democrats look uh, terrible so they lose the election. I don't think either of those are true. I think the Fed is well-intended, misinformed, and way overestimate their powers. That's not surprising that somebody with a lot of power overuses their powers. And I th- who was it? Absolute power uh, corrupts, you know, absolutely, corrupts. yeah. I don't think they're corrupt. I'm not trying to suggest corrupt. But it it they overuse it right, and um, and and so I don't think they're malintended. By the way, do you think the people who planned the pullout of Americans from Afghanistan were malintended? I don't. No. I don't. Th- I think they were professionals. They all went to the right schools. I think they all tried to do what they thought was the right thing. Was it as a disaster? Yes. Being well educated and going to the right schools—and we're right in quotes, obviously—and yes. and and being well intended does not guarantee that you don't get disastrous results. And I don't mean that as knocking on those people. I think it's a a kind of they got to the point where they I told themselves a story that it's all going to work out just fine, and everything's going to, and they all started having group think. And they got convinced of their power and it didn't turn out that way. And I think the same thing's happening with the Fed. They think they have this precision control. I mean, banks were teetering because they raised rates faster than any rate, any, any time in history. Banks are teetering because they raised rates faster than any time in history after telling people they weren't going to raise them. And the last time they said it, it took nine years to raise them. And then starting a couple of months later, they raised them five percentage points in a year. Fastest ever. And as the banks teeter, you know what they did? They raised the rates. As opposed to saying, well, maybe we ought to just kind of, it's a blizzard and we're on ice. Let's just hold on a second and see (laughs) what happens. No, they raised it again. And they did it when First Republic, they did it again. Right. And you're going, I don't think they're malintended. They've got a narrative. They've bought their narrative. They've fallen into groupthink. Um, I think they've misread the situation. Um, I could be wrong. But the advantage of my position would be much more cautious. Now, having said that, I'm not the one who sets the policy. They are. So you say, what's the Fed going to do? They don't know. <laughs> so how are you and I supposed to predict when, if you look at the Fed, they, since they've done, quote, forward guidance, their forward guidance has been among the worst forecasts of what the Fed will do. I mean, it's factually true, just empirically true that their forecasts of themselves are atrocious. Now, you could say that's because they change with the times, or you could say they aren't very good at figuring (laughs) this stuff out. You choose what you will. I think that this is analogous to what probably happened in Afghanistan, which is well-meaning, well-trained, people in power— devise the strategy, devise the plan, have signed into it, they're going to execute it. And it turns out it's not a good strategy. But it's not a conspiracy strategy. It's not evil. It has unfortunate consequences, much as the Afghanistan had very unfortunate consequences in the way it was executed. Did they need to raise rates? Of course they needed to. I was writing in Linneman letter in December, 2020, they got to raise rates, can't have them at zero, but raise them slowly, no rush, raise them slowly. And they didn't start for another year and a quarter. And you kind of go, they should have been raising a little bit, a little bit. Markets could have adjusted. The banks could have adjusted. Everything would have still taken adjustment, but there's a big difference between adjusting to a typhoon and the same amount of rain coming over a two-year period. Right. That, that's a, that's a great analogy. Hi, this is Zach Happenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you.
0: Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us/lfi. You mentioned banks. So, what is the impact of of the of the failures that have happened and do you see more of those coming you know from these mid-sized banks i think the larger banks they're, they're too big to fail you know they're they're buying up these assets on the cheap i guess but but is this the start of a bank crisis or is it just a few banks got ahead of their I, skis
1: i i don't think this is 2008 2009 um why um one of the main first of all the money center banks have huge reserves as a result of QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4. The regionals, not so much, because the way they executed, they, the Fed, executed, um, implemented QE1, 2 3 4 was buying bank assets at a premium, okay, and creating money for them. Uh, and they bought Ginny Mays, Fannie Mays, Freddie Max, high-grade corporate paper. They didn't buy from a regional bank uh, a line of credit for $50,000 on a taco stand, right? They just didn't do that. So those regionals never build up those huge reserves. Having said that, um, the reason I think it's not in addition to the big banks having a lot of cushion, is that in 2008, we did not know what the banks of, excuse me, what the governments would do, right or wrong. We didn't know what they would do if the banks started failing. Do you know, do you believe you know what the government will do if a lot of banks fail this time? And the answer is yes, they're going to They're going to prop them up. They're going to put a lot of money in. They're going to consolidate them up. We didn't know that. Right. That was an unknown. And, you know, Hank Paulson had his uh, midnight meetings where they were trying to decide. And none of us knew what they were going to do. They didn't know what they were going to do. I'm completely convinced that we know that they'll prop them up. It's like, do you think Germany will ever let Deutsche Bank go under? (laughs) No. Right? Right. Uh, no matter how badly they manage themselves, they're not going to put them on. You're, Switzerland is not going to let UBS go under. They uh, they didn't really even let CS go under. They consolidated them in. They didn't let them just kind of go under, right, and let the chips fall where they may. That is a great degree of certainty. Now, you can argue is that good or bad, but it's a great degree of certainty we didn't have about the banking system. Uh, for the financial crisis.
0: So you're talking about the certainty, right? And and there is, I think, with with the banking. But um, if there's so, if why aren't they lending the the banks, the the commercial lenders? In, uh-huh. in you know, in uncertain times, is how it feels, right? To to the consumer and to people out in the world, investors and everything. But as you said, I I'm pretty sure the, the banks aren't going under because, as you said, the government won't let them. But why won't if they know that the banks themselves? Why aren't they lending? Okay.
1: There's two different forces at work. Let's take the regionals. They did not have big cushions and they did, they did, did not have as sticky of, of deposits as the big banks did and as fragmented deposits. Um, why are they not lending? If you do a little bond pricing model on what happens to the value of their assets when the interest rate on the short end goes up 5% in a year, and the interest rate on the long end goes up 100 basis points, their portfolio is barely alive. And they're dealing with problems. They're dealing with stay alive rather than grow. Okay? Um, Why is the farmer not planning during the monsoon? They're just trying to survive rather than there will come a time. Right, they will plan again, but there come a time. The big banks are a little different because they do have a lot of reserves. They do have a lot of capacity, and they basically didn't end at the at the end of twenty twenty two because if they sold loans to lend the money, you know, I sold loans, get the money, and make a new loan, they'd have taken losses on those loans, and they would have lost bonus. Now, as you come into this year, I think they're making loans, but just very cautiously. And there's only like seven of them, right? That have that kind of capacity. And I'm not saying they're, they're uh, uh, conspiring, but they're being very cautious. They're just being very cautious. And it's a lender strike by the big guys and by the small guys. It's like, let's keep the ship afloat before we try to make a lot of progress. And let's plug the holes before we make a lot of progress. That said, they're going to plug the holes. They're going to plug the holes. And they are going to move forward. It just seems like an eternity if you're living it. You understand in a history book, this will be a flash of an eye. By the way, even looking back to the financial crisis, there was basically a three-year lender strike. Right, Mm -hmm. just like really three-year lender strike and in some cases even went four years. But as you sit here today, and, and that's only like 14, 15 years ago, it seems like it didn't last very long. But if you were in the market for debt, it lasted forever. Until it didn't. So I think we're kind of undergoing that a little bit. But lenders will lend again, but it's challenging. And then you have the office building problem, which is nobody knows. Everybody has opinions, but nobody knows what happens to office demand. And uh, therefore, a lot of properties are challenged. And I I yeah, it's interesting. Somebody said to me the other day, what do you think happens with somebody who's got a an office building that's 30% occupied, nobody is leasing, it's a commodity building in a secondary market, uh, the owner's not going to put any money into it, their equity is gone. Um, and they say, won't they just give the keys to the lender? And I can imagine the lender going, no, no, <laughs> anything but that. Right. You know, And by the way, until that moment comes, the lender is going to say, of course, pay up, pay up, pay up. And then when it comes, because if that operator can't make it work, how, how is a bank going to make it work? And there's nobody to sell it to right now. And there's nobody to sell it to right now because the banks aren't lending. So since the banks aren't lending, there's nobody buying those things right now. And so it's a little odd. There's going to be a lot of can kicking down the road in the office sector. Uh, in the next year or so. Now,
0: talking about office, that it, it's and maybe other asset classes are like this too. But it seems like there's two different worlds, right? If you look at the A class, you know the the trophy properties, those seem to be doing better than some of the others, right? So, is there just a in in this asset class at least is there just a flight to quality where you know some people are still yeah. maybe looking for office space, but instead of you know X thousand square feet, they're they're downsizing but going to a nicer property to attract
1: their workers back in right i think you're dead on quality will prevail right quality if, if you think about a cycle jim what normally happens in any cycle is um when the weakest stuff does best is right at the end of the cycle because all the best stuff got filled when people could move up right yeah. in quality yeah. so you could move up in quality they got filled up, the economy kept growing, demand kept growing, the opportunity set got smaller, so that a lot of people compromised and went lower quality. That's always the end of the cycle. And then the beginning of the cycle, you always want the best. And I think over the long term, you want the best. And by the way, I, best doesn't necessarily have to be a trophy, just have to be a well-designed, well, well-marketed, well-located well-leased kind of building. But um, yeah, I mean, the best, it
0: will do better. Uh, Can you talk about some other asset classes and how does all of the economic stuff, the Fed, all that stuff, inflation that we talked about, how does that affect real estate? My understanding is you you still like multifamily. Are there other asset classes you're
1: looking at? So I like multifamily for uh, a few reasons. One is um, that the uh, um, Freddie and Fannie are there as a source of capital. You don't have Freddie and Fannie there for office. I know the office guys wish they right. Did. You don't have Freddie and Fannie for the retail guys. You don't have Freddie and Fannie for the senior housing and such, right? So that's just – you have all the capital sources available to every other sector plus – Freddie and Fannie, which is huge. So that's one reason. Second is uh, demographics are pretty good Um, uh, moving forward. There is a bit of an undersupply still of multifamily, a bit of from nimbyism, not in every market, but a bit of nimbyism has created a bit of undersupply. Um, You've got the run-up in interest rates and construction costs is dampening down the new supply that's being started today. So the market two years from now, if you started a project today, it'll be pretty good two years from now. You have an oddity. Remember I mentioned that people locked in their mortgage rate. And you might say, well, how does that affect things? Well, people are not going to give up 5% of spending power easily. By selling their home, because the minute you sell your home, you give up that locked in rate. Right. OK, you go back to if I sell my home, I go back to paying market rate rather than so people are going to slower than normal sell. That means the market for single family is going to be tighter. Over time, not at every second, but it'll be tighter, and that means people will rent longer particularly at the lower price points. And the last thing is single family housing is massively undersupplied, like three and a half percent undersupplied. Three and a half doesn't sound like a lot until you consider it's for something people really want. So imagine imagine this is I'm gonna oversimplify it. There's two kinds of there's there's Toyotas and Fords. Those are the only two cars in the economy, right? And people really would like to have Toyotas, but there's a three and a half percent shortfall of Toyotas. You don't think that's going to be really good for Ford? <laughs> right? So it's, you've got a three and a half percent shortfall of something people really want, which is owner occupied, but it's not available. That's got to be good for multifamily. And that shortfall is not going to disappear in a hurry because that's nimbyism and a whole lot of things pent up. Um it may never disappear. It, it, it could, but it's not going to disappear overnight. I mean, that's like three and a half million homes. You're not going to eliminate three and a half million homes shortfall in a year or two or three. So that bodes well for multifamily in the competitive alternative set. If you go to industrial, industrial still looks good, you've got decent supply, the fact that online sales require about three times the amount of floor space as a sale for brick retail requires. So, if I, you know, your sweater, your your sweatshirt, if it was bought in a, a store, uh, it requires one third of the amount of warehouse space for it as if it was bought online. Wider aisles, more handling. Smaller shippings, we're not shipping boxes, we're shipping individual items, all that kind of stuff. And that has increased the demand, and that three to one factor is pretty prevailing on demand for, I think, a few more years. So I like it, and there's still capital available for it. Um, office, we talked about retail, never, I, I mentioned now, Townman. one of the lessons I learned from Alfred was. Bad retail is always bad retail. Uh, If people don't want to shop there or they can't get there, it's bad retail. And if you can't lower your rent, because you can't lower your rent enough to change the price of Cheerios. And if you can't change the price of Cheerios as the landlord, you can't change shopping patterns much. So I've never liked bad retail, always liked good retail. Good retail is doing pretty well. It's hard work. Good retail is hard work for a very simple reason. You're satisfying consumer preferences that always change. So if you're in the business with fixed real estate, satisfying ever-changing consumer preferences, it's going to be a tough business. But it can be a profitable business. It's just a tough business because just as soon as you get in Shake Shack, um, They've become passe after a year and a half and people want shaky shack or wobbly shack, you know, and now you got to figure out they're not doing enough sales. How do I get? So Retail's that way. And then I'll do hospitality. I think hospitality has a great outlook. We are not back quite to pre-pandemic levels. We've had three years of population growth. We've had income growth. It should be 5 to 6% runway there. The Chinese have not come back yet to the U.S. hospitality. They will. I think you'll see some of them this year and a lot of them in the next couple of years. And the Chinese were spending twice as much on international travel as U.S. was prior to the pandemic. So that's a – I mean, you remember walking yeah. around, you would see. So there's a huge possibility there. Um Senior housing, senior housing uh, made the mistake three times in the last 25 years that the baby boom is aging. So we need senior housing. They had a spurt of capital that provided a lot of product. The leading edge of the baby boom today is 75. Okay, So you can imagine how far they missed 20 years ago and 14 years ago and nine years ago. It is true the baby boom is aging one year at a time. People roughly say 78 to 80 is the magic age. They're younger, of course, but they're older. And if you think of 78 to 80 being the magic age, the the oldest baby boomer, just do the math, 1948, 19, they got pregnant in 47, had the child in 48. The boys came home in 45. Took them a year or so to get married, a year or so to get pregnant, and then the child the first wave was forty-eight, right? This is not hard math. And and so the front edge of the baby boom is still about three to four years away from the influx in the senior. It'll come, yeah. but it's still three to four years away. What is the influx right now? It's children born during World War II, and there weren't a lot of them. So this is still a little hard time there demographically, but will change very rapidly. That's a quick trip. That's
0: awesome. And I know uh, you have to go. I just one more question, uh, because I heard you talking about supply and demand, and I just thought it was brilliant where you were saying some markets have huge demand and lots of supply, which I think of the sunshine states. And then you talked about Cleveland and Cincinnati as an example of lower demand, but no supply and why those might be OK to invest in. Can you briefly talk on that? And then I'll let you go.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. That's what. If you're a developer, you want growth. You just want raw growth. You need more houses build, more offices build, more shopping space build. So, if you're a developer and you live on that development fee, you want just pure growth, so you can create supply. If you're an investor in existing property, it's the balance between supply and demand that matters. So it's great that demand grows 3% a year, but if supply is growing 3.5% a year, year after year, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And so what some markets have, um, some sub-markets of a place like Cleveland, good example, is it going to grow 3%? Probably not, but neither is the supply. And If I can get demand to grow by a half a percent and supply doesn't grow at all, that's better than having demand grow at 3% and having supply grow at 4%. Not for the developer. The developer gets the development. So that's the way I would answer that.
0: That's great. I I think that just that kind of opens your eyes, right? You don't always have to go where the growth is, but you want to look at the imbalance of supply and demand. So I thought that was great. And listen, I know I've held you longer than uh, than I agreed, but this is fascinating. Really appreciate you. If listeners want to get in touch with you or subscribe to the Lineman letter or access your education, what's the best way they can
1: do that? So go to Lineman Associates, L-I-N-N-E-M-A-N, com, or you could email my brother, my wonderful brother, Doug, at D, as in Doug, Lineman, at Associates.com. And we would welcome uh, your interest, and we do a lot of interesting things, both for-profit and charitable, that you would find there. You'd find a lot of things I've written and talked about. So yeah, we would welcome that. Awesome, I will put
0: that all in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for your time. This was fascinating. I've learned a ton, and this is probably one of those ones I'm gonna listen to a couple of times. So thank you very much, Peter, appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return. Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents, and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at visor.co. That was fascinating talking with Peter. I was really, I'm really grateful that he agreed to come on, on the podcast. You know, He's usually on uh, much bigger podcasts uh, than this one, but it was really, really great to, to speak with him. And just, I, le- I learned so much. You know, one of the couple of things that he was talking about when he was listing all those names of people that have helped him and people that he've, he's learned from. And, you know, he also admitted some of them were just, uh, were, were teachers and professors. And so they were paid for it and didn't have a choice. Uh, but. You know others weren't right, and how do you get those types of people to really engage with you? And, and he said, you know, he showed competence, he showed interest, and they were willing to uh, to help him out. And most importantly, he asked. And all I was thinking when he said that was, it was the same thing. I didn't think I would get Peter Lineman on on our little little podcast, but I asked, and and he came on, and I learned a ton. So I think that's what you have to do. You just have to be able to. Put yourself out there and ask people to help, and you will be surprised with what you get. And there are a couple of nuggets here. I mean, there's a ton of nuggets. I'm, I'm not going to go through every one because then this will be as long as the as the podcast. Uh, but I really liked when he was talking about the mortgages, right? People locked in these interest rates at 2%. And the difference between that and the normal, you know, quotes, normal uh, mortgage of four, five, 6% that you get historically has basically put about five grand in in these people people's pockets and it's a big chunk of the us he calculated out i think 42 percent of the population has basically an extra average five thousand dollars in their pocket because of the low mortgage rate so they are not really going to move and so how does that affect everything else now as he said eventually they will move and they will you know go move somewhere else and get a new mortgage and and reset but right now they're not because they don't want to lose that extra cash and so that was just super interesting he talked about What Milton Milton Friedman thought of the Fed, you know, that they're arrogant and they're going to do what they do and they don't really, you know, they're they're not necessarily the most competent. And I thought, you know, Peter was was kind about how he he worded it. Um, They're smart people and they think they know what they're doing and and just maybe they don't. And so it doesn't mean they're malicious. It doesn't mean there's a conspiracy to do this or to do that. As as Peter said, it's just that they are subject to what what we all are, right? They think they're right. It's group think. And they're just going to do what they think is, is best. And uh, they, they might be wrong. Uh, the also inflation, you know, how the inflation rate that is published housing is a major component of that i think he said between six and twenty six percent or something i got the numbers wrong but some major component of the inflation that we're seeing is housing so when these numbers come out and they're showing housing they're showing rents from six months or a year ago and at that time we were getting a lot of rent increases we aren't anymore but that's showing up in the current inflation numbers which is why he thinks that inflation is not as bad as uh, as everyone says it is now again you go to the grocery store and you're paying a lot more for stuff you might disagree but also i thought it was interesting how he says you know year over year comparisons don't really make sense when you're looking back at the the pandemic when supply was um or demand was so was so uh decreased so it's interesting I i don't know where inflation is going. I guess no one knows where inflation is going, but it's nice to hear kind of a different opinion than just everyone saying, oh, inflation is totally out of control. Well, Peter had a, had a different idea on that. And then that goes right into the demand supply. And I really love this is, you know, when you look at all the, the sunshine states where, where every or the smile states, I think they call them now, where there's all this growth, everybody's moving toward there. So you think, well, that's where I got to invest. That's those are the markets I want. But you got to think about that if the supply in those markets is higher than the demand, then maybe you you don't want to be there as much as if you're in a place where the demand, like Cleveland, there's no growth maybe, but the demand might be higher than the supply. So you can't just look at hey, where is everybody moving to? You also have to look at what is the supply. Yes, they're increasing demand, but if the supply is increasing at a greater rate, then that might not be as good of a place to invest as you initially thought it was. So just a lot of stuff that Peter talks about is changing the mindset, changing how you're thinking and just using data and facts and trying to figure things out. Will he be right? Absolutely not. Nobody is right all of the time, but he might be directionally accurate. It might be wrong from the timing, but maybe along the way he will be proven right. And so you just have to take in what Peter says and take in what other people say and put it all together. And in your mind, try to rationally figure out where the best places to invest are. So again, Super grateful that Peter was uh, willing to come on the podcast. I thought he did a great job and gave us a ton of information. So we'll certainly try to catch up with him again. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by passive investing from left field and left field investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.